Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Nice to see you again, Crossbridge, whenever you are tuning in. Thanks for doing so. We're talking about marriage. And the United States, probably other cultures also, have a bit of a mixed uh, personality when it comes to marriage. On the one hand, it's one of our highest values. Uh, we still have lavish weddings, and we, you know, we dedicate all this money and time to to that ceremony. My niece is a wedding photographer, and she has a booming business uh, at banquets and other events. We celebrate 50th anniversaries because that's that's praiseworthy and honorable. On the other hand, for many people, increasingly, marriage is outdated. It's uh, maybe a convenience or an inconvenience. For some, it's even something to be mocked. So uh, we have something of a mixed uh, attitude, mixed personality on uh, marriage. I saw this many years ago when I was doing my PhD studies at Purdue University, studying communication. I was in a class called Interpersonal Communication, and it was a seminar-style class, so students or groups of students would uh, research a topic and then present it. Well, one group had the topic of love or communicating love. How do we do that? Different ways, different cultures do it in different ways. And in the course of their seminar, they introduced the class to three Greek words for love. You may uh, be aware of these eros, that's like physical, erotic love, uh, philos, which is like uh, brotherly love, friendship. And then the third one, our, our famous, our important uh, uh, Greek Christian word is agape, right? And they defined it as uh, being a benefactor and unselfish and looking out for the little guy. And uh, that's how they defined it. And I raised my hand and I said, thank you. Uh, that's great. And I think everything that you've presented is accurate. I just realized also that that third word is not just, uh, you know, benefaction and mentoring someone. It's, uh, it's the typical word in the, in the Bible for the Christian's love of God. We agape him, his love for us, for God so loved the world, agape. It's the word for a husband's love for his wife, a wife's love for her husband. So just realize it's a little uh, broader, perhaps, than, than the way you've um, described it. Well, the professor in the class, I'm not sure why to this day, but he took offense at what I was saying, and he said, that is unrealistic. Jeff, he said, let's say you came home from work and you found your wife. He knew my wife, Liz. He found, you found Liz with, and he named someone else in the class, my, my friend Mike. You found Liz with Mike. What would you say then? And he says in front of the whole class. And, and I said, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I would say, Liz, uh, can we talk about this? And the whole class just erupted in laughter. They thought that was the greatest thing. And he rode me and he didn't let up. And I wasn't sure what hit me. So 
After class, I followed him upstairs up to his office, and I said, uh, Professor, uh, can I talk to you about what I perceive to be a grilling in class? Like, why did you do that? What's going on? And he said, uh, he said, Jeff, I just, I just think, I just was pushing you because I think that this idea of agape love in marriage or other relationships, I just, I just think it's unrealistic. I just think it's uh, unrealistic for God or whoever to expect that in human relations. So we have the Bible's clear depiction of marital love, husband and wife. We have the world's, you know, various understandings. So at Crossbridge, we're happy that God tells us the meaning of marriage, uh, the title of my sermon, The Meaning of Marriage. He tells, tells us what it's all about, and we listen with ears open and hearts open. And here's our word for this day. It's actually from Malachi, an unusual place to find teaching on marriage. Malachi chapter 2, verses, uh, starting with verse 13. Malachi 2.13 says... And this is the second thing you do. Malachi's listening, or the Lord is listening. You guys are doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. That's why you're under the discipline of God. Here's the second thing that you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts them um, with favor from your hand verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Like, what's going on? Why doesn't he accept our offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And, was, uh, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff packed in there. But to answer our question, what's the meaning of marriage? Let me call your attention to a word, a phrase, some different teaching here. Perhaps the essence, we might say the meaning of marriage if we get it down to its essence, is covenant. It is a covenant between, obviously, the husband and the wife. That's how he describes it here. Now, a covenant, um, I looked it up in a Bible dictionary, is, quote, a formal agreement made in the presence of God in which both parties vow to carry out their responsibilities. There are always blessings 
for obedience in a covenant, and there are always curses for disobedience, always accompanying uh, covenants. Notice that a covenant implies a vow. It is a vow made in the presence of God. And what do we vow related to marriage? Well, in our culture, we vow to love and to cherish, to honor, maybe even the old-fashioned, to obey. It's a vow. Notice that this vow is made for how long? Till death parts us. Notice that the circumstances of when we carry out this vow in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. So this covenant of marriage is a vow. Notice that it is made in the presence of God, right? There's a vertical aspect to this human, this horizontal relationship between a man and a woman that we call marriage. Uh, uh, Malachi says he has given a portion of his spirit in their union. What does that mean? I'm not sure, but there is a sacred, um, God-infused, vertical aspect to this covenant. Proverbs 2.17 says, The adulteress has ignored the covenant she made before God. This is a vow, not just going this way, not just going this way, but in the presence of God. So, marriage is a covenant. It is a sacred promise. It is a sacred responsibility and relationship. So, there's a lot packed into that passage. Let me, let me try to unpack it a little bit with a few more points uh, describing the meaning of marriage, especially as a covenant. First of all, marriage is an illustration. You say, well, illustrate what? It is to illustrate God himself. How's that for a heavy-duty thought? Our marriages are to picture, represent God. A man and a woman joined in marriage tells us something. It pictures something about God. And you need both to do this. Um, so how, do, how does this work? How, does, how do a man and a woman uh, vow, you know, covenant in marriage? How does that picture God? Here's how. Love and unity. And now we're getting at the essence, at least part of the essence, of God himself. Love, God is love, and unity. Here's here's the idea. Two separate persons, persons, male and female, two separate persons who are equal but different come together in unity to pursue the same goals, love and honor and submission. And in that way, they picture the beautiful triune nature of our God. You know, our Christian theology says God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Different persons love, honoring, obeying, submitting, lifting up each other, honoring love, pursuing this, you might say, pursuing the same goals, 
love, and unity. That's what marriage is to picture, the very nature of God himself. And we see this all the way back at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you want a theology of marriage, you got to go back there to the, to the beginning. Let us make humans, the word uh, is humanity, male and female. Let us make humans in our image. I'm calling it a picture or an illustration. Uh, let us make humans after our likeness. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then the very next verse, verse 27. So God created humans in his image, male and female. He created them. So marriage is a vow. It's a, a union. Uh, there's a mysterious element. God's spirit infuses as we represent God there's other representations. There's other pictures also. This is not the only one, but it's a major one in the Bible, uh, marriage illustrating God. So we want to be clear that this diversity with unity is one of the reasons that God does not sanction same-sex marriage or same-sex uh, erotic behavior. This is very difficult in our culture, and it's going to get harder. But to hold to a biblical standard, uh, we, we, we need to remember male and female, image of God, got together for procreation, for companionship, and so forth. We call it marriage, a vow, the spirit infusing this. Uh, that is his design, his creation design. It's a personal issue, the same-sex relation, personal issue, not just out there in society. Um, most of us have family members, friends, and others um, that are involved in these relationships. And if you yourself experience uh, gender dysphoria, find yourself attracted to the same sex, here's, here's a message for you. Here's a message. God loves you you. Yeah, that's the message. And if you have gender dysphoria, you're not sure who you are, same sex, um, then you're on. And, and if you want to follow God, if you want to be his disciple and obey him, then you're on a journey. And God will help you with your own desires and background and proclivities. All of us have them. <laughs> he will help you. He loves you. He's for you. But your goal, the journey you're on, is to live sexually in celibacy, which is the same standard for all single people. But let's be clear about this. It's not going to get any easier uh, holding to this biblical standard of male-female joined in marriage. It's not going to get any easier in our culture. But I think this is the theological basis that we of our understanding of marriage. May I also say a personal word, a pastoral word uh, to those of you who are divorced. And here's the message for you. God loves you. And there is a place for you in this church. And you're on your own journey. And your journey, we all have them, <laughs> Your own journey is to make your current marriage, assuming that you've remarried, 
one that honors God and fulfills what we're calling the meaning of marriage to picture him, love and unity. So let's hang on to this biblical standard and let's support each other and help each other. It's very difficult. It's going to get harder in the days to come. But this is what God has revealed to us about the meaning of marriage. Let me break this down, this covenant, uh, into another idea, second idea. Marriage is for procreation. Uh, This one's probably less controversial and more easily grasped than the mystery of God, uh, the Holy Trinity. But it's for procreation. And in our Genesis passage, right after, you know, it says he created the male and female. And uh, right after that, verse 28, it says, so be fruitful and multiply. And that's part of the reason God created marriage. And so why is God interested in people having babies? Why is that, you know, the creation design and the Garden of Eden and all that? Uh, Malachi tells us why this is a value and a commandment and important to God. Go back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, guard yourselves. Guard your spirit. Be faithful to your wife or your husband. But here we're focusing on he is desiring And he has created marriage. Part of the meaning of marriage is procreation, godly offspring. Here's the idea. When you have kids, then they, like like your family unit, a place of honoring God and glorifying him, a little, little taste of heaven on earth. I know your family's crazy like all of ours are, but it's a godly family seeking to honor him and live for him. Then your kids are in that. They're part of that family covenant. And when they grow up and move away, they should take God with them. If your kids or a child uh, grows up and moves out and goes to Phoenix, God should go to Phoenix. And if your kids grow up and they move away and they, they, they go to Japan, God should show up in Japan. God is seeking to fill the earth with godly offspring to spread his fame, his glory, his reputation, his renown. That's part of the reason. That's part of the meaning of marriage, procreation, ambassadors of his glory, spreading his fame throughout the earth. Well, I have another point. This is my last one. Uh, So marriage is a covenant. Marriage is for an illustration of God. By the way, if I can just backtrack for a second. uh, Marriage not only illustrates God, it illustrates Christ's relationship with the church. Remember that teaching in Ephesians? The husband loves the wife and lays down his life for her. The wife loves the husband, honors him, submits to him. That's a picture of Christ and the church. So the illustration uh, not only pictures God, but Christ's relationship to the church. So, um, This covenant illustrates God. It is for procreation. And number three, marriage is for companionship. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
It's part of the reason he invented it. It's part of the meaning of marriage. We have to, uh, we, in our imaginations, we have to feel the isolation of this Genesis account. You know, the environment is beautiful and perfect, and there is no, you know, bloodshed, and there's no weeds in the garden, and it's just a perfect environment. It is paradise, and Adam has a great boss, and everything is good. But hang on, there, there, there's something that, something's missing. So Adam, the Lord uh, brings all these animals in front of Adam and he names them. And he's, he's you know, he's naming them. There's the uh, lion. I call you lion and lioness and uh, hmm, goose and gander. And he names all these animals and there's no counterpart to him. And he's going, hmm, hadn't really noticed that before. But now that I see and uh, he feels alone. Something is not right in paradise. And that is when God puts Adam into a deep sleep. Remember the story, chapter 2? He takes a rib from his side. He creates the first woman, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. And when Adam sees her, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken uh, out of man. And in Hebrew here, the this, this syntax and the language is broken, and it's kind of awkward here. It's sort of like, um, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is... I think the Hebrew Hebrew here is hubba hubba, as he sees, sees the first uh, woman. So my point is, God created marriage, one reason for companionship. That's part of, a, part of the genius behind this. He invented it. And of course, that companionship includes sexual intimacy. It's part of his design. We celebrate, we affirm that this is God's design, his creation design. The Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. That includes physical intimacy, but it's even broader. It's uh, naked sort of metaphorically or psychologically. They had nothing to hide. They were open companionship, communion, intimacy. Chapter 2, Genesis. Then what happened? Hmm? Genesis 3 happened. The fall. Adam and Eve sinned. Broken relationships. Uh, awkward intimacy. Uh, alienation with creation and with, with each other and with self and certainly with God. And so we are today in our Christian marriages trying to get back to God's creation design by the presence of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the encouragement of good friends, the yielding, the hearing and yielding to God's Word. We're trying to get back the meaning of marriage question. Um, what about singles? You know, marriage is for companionship and, and sexual intimacy and, you know, all this stuff. So what word do we have for single people? Well, one word is, let's remind ourselves, Jesus was single and Paul was single as far as we know. So there's nothing dishonorable or, you know, shameful. Um, God praises singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, Minister Cole is going to preach on that next week. 
single uh, Christians, uh, the, the Christian singles walk with God. The Bible talks about it. And so in that passage, we're going to hear that if you're single, there's advantages to that. For example, you have more time, at least theoretically, you have more time to devote to the work of God. But the passage also says that singleness is a gift. And as I look around, I guess we must conclude that not many people have that gift. Many people desire uh, the companionship and the intimacy. But if you have the gift, wonderful, wonderful. Use it for the glory of God and trust him to bring the right person at the right time, if someone will come at all, if that's his will, but trust in him um, in regard to your singleness. Well, somebody says, oh, man, oh, man, uh, I didn't know all this stuff when I got married. Me neither. I didn't. And that's why I have told you today. That's why God is communicating with Crossbridge today. Somebody says, well, my parents set a really poor example. I hear you. Yeah. And your job is to break generational sin and not let it spin out and proliferate. Somebody says, well, I didn't, I didn't have these expectations when I got married, you know, a covenant and a vow made before God and, you know, companionship and to illustrate God himself and all this stuff. I didn't, I, I didn't know that when I was signed up. And I guess if you'll allow me to be blunt, I guess our response is, well, uh, change your expectations. If you uh, are planning a trip to Hawaii, you have an expectation of what to uh, you'll find there. So you pack your shorts and you pack your sandals and you even buy a snorkel and you pack your snorkel. But then the plane that you get on actually is not going to Hawaii. It actually is going to the Swiss Alps. And you come off the plane and you're kind of shocked. Well, once there in the Alps, you can continue to try to live according to your former expectations. And if you do, you're going to be cold, <laughs> might be disgruntled, or you can adopt a new set of expectations and you can get yourself some warm clothing and buy some skis. <laughs> and you'll find there's no place on earth like the Swiss Alps. Just so God has revealed to us uh, the meaning of marriage, and we remind ourselves there are blessings for those who are obedient to the covenant, and there are curses for those who are disobedient to the covenant. All right, a couple of final application points here. Uh, single people, my application for you is count the cost. <laughs> I mean, this is a pretty high standard of marriage, isn't it? So just realize what you're getting yourself into. Count the cost. This is what you're signing up for. It's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. The purpose is to glorify God for life together. So serious business. Count the cost. Second application also for single people. Make sure that your potential spouse has this understanding of marriage or something similar to this. Make sure you're entering this holy covenant together, knowing what you're signing on for. 
Otherwise, you know, you're in for a rocky road down the road, expectations. Here's another application uh, for married people. Married people, don't even kid about divorce. It's not funny. And I hear, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you do that again, I'll divorce you. They're just kidding, but uh, find some other way to kid. Uh, yeah, enough said on that. And then finally, one final uh, application for married people. You may need to stir up your love for your spouse. How can you do that? I don't know. Uh, dates, date night, uh, gifts, words of affirmation. But stir up what was there once and see if your marriage can't uh, regather some of that blessing and that joy that you once knew. So marriage is a covenant. It illustrates God himself. It illustrates Christ's relationship to the church. Marriage is for procreation. That's his will. And marriage is for companions, including sexual intimacy. And there you have sort of a grammar, an introduction to biblical teaching on marriage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for guiding us and teaching us and helping us not be blown around by every wind of teaching in our culture. But Lord, help us. This is a high standard. Help us, Lord. Help the single people, help the married people, help the divorced people who are single that way. Help us, Lord, by your grace and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.